Man, the fact that this movie is so hard to find online has renewed my love for DVD covers or just the overall DVD environment. Just the whole physical DVD experience. Yeah, you get to, you know, get off of your comfy couch, put it into whatever player you're going to get. Hopefully it's actually compatible and not just like a Blu-ray only thing that nukes a DVD or whatever. Mm -hmm. But also we get those great two-word reviews or whatever, (laughs) like the instant blurbs on the front cover. Oh, yeah, and also the front cover of our of this copy of heavy was just like is that Liv tyler on the cover it's just, just Liv like, tyler i'm pretty sure just like fading away into like a milky <laughs> fog with like yeah. a tiny uh who's the actor name who plays victor uh pruitt taylor vince it's just like a tiny version of him like on her shoulder as she's like fading into like obscurity <laughs> but the best thing about this cover is the fact that one reviewer in quotation quotation marks said this movie was a acting decathlon? <laughs> yes. Which honestly has kept me up the last two nights trying to figure out all ten events of an acting decathlon. <laughs> and I just I just can't figure it out, and it's keeping me awake. The, I... Yeah, the hardest part is there's only really five characters six if you squint really hard <laughs> so even if you're trying to say like all the performances are good you're still inventing like four more performances <laughs> oh i was assuming it was like each person is just on 10 separate categories of yeah, oh, yeah. Prowess. <laughs> okay. like best like, facial expressions best voice inflections best body language on camera best delivery yeah, yeah, of yeah. lines that's four okay. right there i'm doing pretty good okay um playing dead that was involved in in this movie yeah, yeah. at least one character plays dead that's sexiest the... cry sexiest cry okay not... yeah, all right yeah. we'll, we'll put that on talk there. about it you don't it's remember maybe... that sydney we've talked about it before on this podcast haven't we not on this podcast no oh i'm pretty sure we have hmm. ethan no because only... i'm trying i've been trying to come up with a delicate way to talk about it Oh, there is no delicate well, way. You just have it to was undelicate it. here, so let's talk about it now, I guess. Okay. Sydney, do you find Liv Tyler attractive? Yeah. Okay. Always? I don't. <laughs> Except, <laughs> I do think she is very beautiful when she cries. Like, and this she, is when she goes like, aye! Or like... <laughs> no, no, no. When tears sad. are streaming down her face. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know know what to think about that. He doesn't usually use the word beautiful. He's like, it's hot when she cries. That's what he says. Okay, I'm not that bad. That makes it a bit weirder, if I'm being honest. I'm not that bad. She looks too much like her her dad, I think, otherwise. Maybe she transforms, in your opinion, when she cries. What are you? That's my problem. Not attracted to Steve Tyler? (laughs) Who isn't? (laughs) No. With his freaking <laughs> black hole of a mouth <laughs> sincerely what's even wilder is like looking into Liv Tyler apparently she didn't know she didn't even know that Steve Tyler was her dad until really? like a year before this movie damn um like she grew up her mom was with another rock star i believe and then Steven <laughs> Tyler that's 
literally. And they were like, this is your dad. And then Steven Tyler would come by and just like hang out with them sometimes. What the and heck? And she would be like, I don't know. This doesn't feel right. So she finally confronted her mom and her mom was like, yeah, actually, he's your dad. And so she changed her name to Liv Tyler like a, a year before this movie was made. Interesting. Um, what was her name before? Oh, no. Was it much worse? Look it up. And when she when she gained that information that he was her father, she went into the bathroom, looked in the mirror, and was like, "I, I just don't see it." <laughs> right. That's what I. That's the point I was building up to, which is like I've never seen two humans that look more identical than <laughs> Liv Tyler and Steven Tyler, <laughs> because no one else in existence has ever looked like Steven Tyler as much as Liv Tyler does. <laughs> she gets like shown like a picture. And it's, like, them, like, sitting on a couch or whatever. And she's like, what happened to this picture? It's, like, Steven Tyler, like, duplicated or something. <laughs> That's definitely not me. I look way different than that. Oh, man. She, so her original name was Liv Rundgren. Mm, okay. Yep. Smart Flows choice. a little bit easier. Tyler, Tyler is a way be better honest. acting name, yes. <laughs> oh, man. Well, one of the other things... You know, I was going to save it for later, but since we're talking about uh, acting categories in this film, mm-hmm. the things that Pruitt Taylor Vince can do with his eyes are incredible. Man, I tried doing that during <laughs> oh, so like a lull, like a lull in the movie, and I was like, "How's he doing that?" It's insane how quickly the man can just like stutter his eyeballs. I know, man. I feel like is... I could do that. Yeah, can we can try we it? A, try it right now. Yeah, try oh, okay. it right now. All right, I have to get like close. For all our audience, audience, I'll listeners. describe it. All right, all right. Okay. Um, For the audience at home, Paige did not move her eyes at all they were and moving. only blinked I a lot. Feel it. No, <laughs> I think the, hold on. I think the webcam might be too low a frame rate to. Okay. I, no, no, that's. They, I can see them was, moving. There's something there. Yeah, it may be the camera. I'll do it yeah. for you guys in person soon, and then we'll we'll we'll, we'll report back. back. Okay, yeah, yeah. we're hanging out soon. So on the Copland episode, I'm putting a oh, note right Copland. now. We'll report back, or we just <laughs> record an addendum the night of, <laughs> and then I'll ship that over and let you splice that in. Perfect. We'll that all stand in Sydney's bedroom all. and scream into one microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's funny that that's what you landed on, Sydney, because an acting decathlon has been my, like, little insider bit I've been doing about this movie ever since I got it in the mail. Oh, yeah? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't know if you remember, but, so, Paige and I bought a copy of Heavy. We hid it in the mailbox for Sydney to pick up on his way home from work one day so that we did not have to buy two copies of the movie Heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, and we'll, we'll watch the movie... We'll even buy the movie, but two copies? Are you insane? That's way too much. Credit. But we were t- talking about like what happens if someone takes it, like if the mailman comes by or something. And I was like, yeah, it'd be really funny if he just like opened the mailbox, took it out, and was like, what's this? An acting decathlon. <laughs> <laughs> it must be great. <laughs> oh, man. Let's talk about this movie sounds good
This is Discovering Directors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Discovering Directors. My name is Ethan Tyler Paula Traffy Cooper. My name is Paige Mazath Marie Cooper. I'm Sydney. And this is a podcast where we talk about directors' entire filmography, one movie at a time, one week at a time, to paint the picture of their career and who that director is. And today we are starting <laughs> off a brand new season on the director James Mangold. You, get, you guys both celebrated silently for some reason. <laughs> we did not celebrate silently. Discord just did not pick up my oh, okay. celebration. I don't know about Sydney, but... I definitely did a mild woo. Yeah, I okay, did too. Okay. Uh, I have to wait for him to prove it. <laughs> this is uh, officially, guys, our fifth season on Discovering Directors here. And uh, the first time we're talking about a straight white guy, so good, good, good to us. Props, but uh, I'm excited. Why don't we go around and just talk a little bit about our experience with James Mangold and um, just some general thoughts before we get into it? You know, these last couple of seasons, we've really leaned into the whole discovering part of discovering directors. Yeah, where I feel like we haven't seen the vast majority of these movies. Um, but it's been a lot of fun to kind of discover them as we go through and see which ones, you know, which ones were I looking forward to, which ones were I kind of dreading, and then seeing how that lines up by the time that I that we actually get to those movies. Um, and I think that this is a very similar one for, for most of us in this conversation. But mm-hmm. Paige, do you want to talk a little bit about James Mangold? I have seen one James Mangold movie. Including Heavy? No. I have seen oh. two James Mangold movies. There we go. Nice. Now counting Heavy. But I had the desire to see a third, so maybe that says something. Didn't know it was okay. him, so it has nothing to do with the fact that it's a James Mangold movie, but I did want to see uh, Ford versus Ferrari. And Copland sounds fun. <laughs> but not at all. I feel like that's going to be rough. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I'm excited to compare Logan to Wolverine, which I've heard is not good either. So I think that'll be kind of fun to see him (laughs) take on the same character concept and what he chose to do the second time around is kind of a, maybe even a redo a little bit in his career. But yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with James Mangold. Aside from the fact that Logan is a fucking slapper of a movie. Mm. Great movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do know that, you know, like I said, Ford v. Ferrari did well, I think. I don't actually know if it won anything, but it was at the Oscars. Yeah. I remember that. I remember that as an experience that I had. So It won <laughs> a couple of things. Did it? Okay. Well, I've heard good things about, like, Girl Interrupted, uh, Walk the Line is supposed to be decent, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm a little weary of a couple of them, but I think that's okay. I think that's kind of part of maybe him figuring out what he's doing as a director, so excited for this season. And there's no horror movies. Well. What? <laughs> well. Ah, fuck. <laughs> What's a horror movie? Identity? Yeah. It's... <laughs> It's in the very first line on Wikipedia, mystery. 
On Wikipedia, the very first line is, Identity is a 2003 American slasher film directed oh. by James Mangold. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's perfect for me. I'm so excited. <laughs> I was the kid who got scared by the hash slinging slasher in SpongeBob, so that's going to go really well for me. I mean, that, that episode was kind of spooky. Like, remember when they showed the black and white footage of Nosferatu? Nosferatu. (laughs) We've definitely referenced this before on our podcast. I think so. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So for me, I had heard of Walk the Line when it came out, obviously. 310 to Yuma. And I'd never seen any of these movies. I remember Night and Day kind of getting clowned on (gasps) when that came out. And then... I race Witherspoons and walk the line. Yeah. Oh, damn. I'm excited for that shit now. All right, go ahead. (laughs) I was really looking forward to the Wolverine. I was a big X-Men fan and I feel like it came out just a couple of years after X-Men origins Wolverine. Oh no. Four years later. So I don't know, but I saw X-Men origins Wolverine in theaters and uh it was bad (laughs) (laughs) and it's kind of a film that i like lightly defend to this day uh even though i do think objectively like it's a bad movie so when the wolverine started to come out i was i was hyping myself up to go see it and then the buzz on it was kind of like eh and i just never went to go see it and then when Logan came out, I had no idea it was the same director or anything like that. Um, but I knew that I wanted to go see Logan. I absolutely loved Logan. It's close to the top of my top 10 list for 2017, which I mean, that year is just so incredibly stacked for me personally, um, that that says a lot, but yeah, I hadn't seen anything of James Mingold's up until then. And then Ford v. Ferrari was, for some reason, the only Best Picture nominee in 2019 that I did not see. And the reasoning behind that in my brain was, I just don't care about cars. And so I figured I would not be into the movie. Yeah, I don't care about cars, the Disney movie, or (laughs) Ford v. Ferrari cars. He's not a caraholic. Is that what we decided was there? Yes, something awful like that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so yeah i didn't really have any desire to see that despite the fact that you know almost everyone i know that did see it told me i didn't have to care about cars to go see it um that being said i mean just looking ahead at this filmography i'm super excited for almost every single movie on here it feels pretty stacked yes and not beyond that feeling of of being stacked is like every movie besides maybe identity has some sort of interesting tidbit. I mean, Copland is like his second movie, you know, we'll talk about his career in a second, but he's still making that while he's at school, but it's still got like these huge named actors in it. Girl interrupted. He gets an Oscar win. Well, he doesn't get an Oscar win. One of the performances gets an Oscar win. Kate and Leopold will probably be objectively terrible, but it'll so be a exciting. lot of fun. This guy's Hugh Jackman in it, so I'm pretty excited. <laughs> exactly. Walk the Line has an Oscar win. Like, 310 to Yuma is an interesting remake. Night and Day has my boy Tom Cruise. Two Wolverine movies, and then this movie that, like, now I'm astronomically more hyped for 
than I was in 2019 to see. Uh, and then in the future, he's got an Indiana Jones movie. So allegedly, like, well, well, or is it more than alleged? <laughs> they're working on it. <gasps> Legit, like actually working on it. So we'll see. But that all sounds pretty great to me. So um, I think I said this on a previous episode, but like I didn't pick this director. Sydney did. And that's why we made him go last year. That's me. Um but I very easily could have. This is a filmography that seems right up my alley, so I'm pretty excited to go through this thing. Sydney, what are your James Mangold thoughts? Um, well, I guess I should just explain how I decided on picking James Mangold. And it was basically, I had seen 310 to Yuma many years ago, and recently I was thinking I was somehow in the cowboy mood I was like, oh, you know what? I saw 310 to Yuma. Is it actually as good as I remember it? And then, like, I just never had a reason to rewatch it <laughs> until now. Yeah. And so I didn't want to just force everyone to watch. Whole, like, if James Mangold only made, like, one good movie. Because I knew, like, I've actually seen a decent number of his movies. But I've, I never knew that he was the director in all of them. Mm-hmm. And so, like, as I was, as I looked up 310 Yuma, so I was directed by James Mangold, and then just, like, saw, like, the different hits, or, like, the other movies he's directed that I'm also interested in watching, it was just, like, just kept ratcheting up, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, we're definitely gonna do this director. You know the gif of, like, the chairman of the WWE, like, Vince? Yes. McMahon? Or, uh uh-huh. That's that's not his last name, but anyways, no. he gets like progressively like more and more excited, and like <laughs> yes. like interposed with like something happening. That was basically me on the IMDb page of James Mangold. <laughs> I was like three ten to Yuma. Oh, oh, Logan. Oh, Ford versus Ferrari. Oh, Kate then, like, Leopold. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah, that's that's kind of how I stumbled on this. And so, yeah, I'm I'm definitely, now that I know that all those movies have the same mind behind them, I'm excited to look at them under a new light and see if I can trace any connections between the two. Or the two? The, between the, the however many like movies ten. he made. <laughs> the two the movies. Ten, yes. I'm going to get the red yarn out. I'm going to make a spider web of connections. Eleven. Eleven movies. Eleven? Okay. We'll cut that part out where I said two and ten, right? <laughs> we, we won't. We won't. Keep it in. Okay. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about that mind. And um, there's a lot going on in this in this career. So I encourage you guys to jump in as I go through this. But uh, James Mangold was born December 16th, 1963 in New York City to Robert Mangold and Sylvia Plemack Mangold, who are two, like, world-famous artists. Robert Mangold is famous for doing, like, minimalist paintings. Mm -hmm. And then Sylvia Mangold does representational depictions of landscapes and interiors. That is indeed what the Wikipedia article says. It sure is. Um, I looked them up, and so... They're very different styles between the two. Our RS expert weigh in <laughs> because I've taken like what like a few art history courses in college. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, 
Minimalist. Not really my shtick, but that's okay. It did tilt me looking at some of his artwork because it has like a lot of geometric shapes that just mm-hmm. like almost don't line or that just barely don't line up. And it's very <laughs> like it it hurts my very soul. So I'm not super into his artwork. Uh his mother is has some nice uh oil and like pastel paintings. I don't have that's that's it. <laughs> as much experience with any of those because you know it's not Baroque or Impressionist or right, right. And this Dutch has been Sydney's art corner. Like yeah, <laughs> thank you for coming. Art, we'll... art corner was Sydney. Yeah, <laughs> I will say James Mangle did did talk about like growing up. His friends all clowned on his parents because they were like, "Your dad just draws like rectangles, and that's how he makes money." Oh shit! <laughs> like, <laughs> which is very funny to me. Also, very funny to me is that on Wikipedia, if you look at like the Mangold family, like any of their pages, it'll always say like Robert Mangold is married to Sylvia Plemac Mangold, and their son is James Mangold, the famous director, and also Andrew Mangold parentheses musician and he's just he has no text i know i saw that as well i was like oof that's that's rough imagine being the andrew mingle to that family (laughs) 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 poor guy uh but he grew up outside new york in the hudson valley graduated from washingtonville high school and then he traveled across the country to attend the California Institute of the Arts for their film and video program. He did say, like, his dad was a professor at a local arts college. And so he thought about going there for his arts program. And he, like, went to meet with the film, the head of the film school there. And that guy was like, listen, if you want to make movies, like, get the fuck out of here. Go to California. <laughs> like, I can't teach you anything. Like, you yep. need to go somewhere legitimate if you want to actually do this, yeah. uh, which is very funny. Well, also, like, the California Institute of the Arts is basically, like, a Disney factory to make oh, yes. Disney people, right? Because it was, oh yes. like, Walt Disney <laughs> was one of the big benefactors or whatever, founding members of this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Walt and Roy Disney both helped found CalArts, and we talked about that back on our Andrew Stanton episodes because he also was a graduate of that school. And, uh, hey, that also plays into James Mangold's career. We'll get there in just a second, though. Um, But he was, like, one of these kids growing up who, a lot like Wes Anderson, who we talked about several seasons ago, like, just got their hands on a camera as early as possible and then spent their childhood just making a bunch of different movies and showing their parents that they were heavily interested in making films. Um, And he says he had like two kind of shorts of note that helped him to get into CalArts. So one is called Barn, which is about uh, a young boy who is trapped in a sentient barn that's like trying to kill him because he knows that the the family (laughs) is going to tear it down soon. Uh, and it ends with the boy, like, striking a match and, like, holding it up to the wall. And then the barn <laughs> doors, like, explode open to let this kid out. Um, Yo, and then the other like ride. one. What was that? Oh, I said, how old was he when you made that one? Uh, that was in high school. In high in school. In high school, he made both of these. And then, okay. for Barn, at least, while he was at Cal Arts, he remade it to be, oh. like, more of a feature-length short. Yeah. 
Um, but then the other one is Growing Up, which actually has a lot of similarities to Heavy, and I think was him kind of playing with this idea because I think that both Growing Up and Heavy are kind of uh, semi-autobiographical <laughs> in nature. No, all uh, my movies. works are completely fictional. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> movies about James Mangold. But the whole idea is it's this high school kid who is practically invisible to his classmates, has a huge crush on this like cute girl, and then just gets beat up by bullies all the time. But then he has like these fantasies where he'll be like the star quarterback or he'll be like the star of the basketball team or whatever. And then finally one day when he's picked on by the bullies, he like has enough courage to push one back and he like pushes him down. And then that gains him like clout and recognition. And that's kind of what uh, the kid was looking for. Like that's all he needed was to be recognized. Sounds somewhat familiar. Can't imagine why. Mm. Um, But those were the two movies that kind of helped him get into CalArts. So at CalArts, he studied under the dean there who uh, was Alexander McKendrick, who's like a famous 1950s, 1940s-ish era director. Um, Probably most famous for And it's going to be our next director. (laughs) I mean, we could. It's only (laughs) like nine movies, I think. Oh, um, but he did Sweet Smell of Success is probably like his most famous movie. And then the original Lady Killers that the Coen brothers later redid. Lady uh, Killers. <laughs> what was that? What is Lady Killers about? It's about a bunch of criminals who basically like con an old lady. Oh, And that's all I know. I've never seen the either version of lady killers but that's what i know is that that's the general gist of it um but anyways so and then alexander mckendrick's also also famous for like almost all of his films are highly recognized in britain and like you know preserved um and he's kind of one of their like foundational directors are they preserved on netflix or any other streaming service? Somehow I doubt it. Or do we have to go to the British National Records? Yeah, exactly. And find the original like spool of the Lady Killers film? That's the only way to see it, yeah. There's no other possible thing. Field trip! Um, but Mangold says, like, Alexander McKendrick's big piece of advice, and that seems to be borne out through everything I could read about him, is like, Every time he gave advice, he was basically like, every director should act. And so he told James Mangold, like, go do a year of acting school in the middle of your film school and just, like, learn how to be on camera, learn what the pressures of that are like. That way, when you're a director, like, you know what you're putting your actors through. Hmm. Um, And so James Mangold said that was, like, one of the, you know, most helpful years of his schooling was his third year in school. Like he just did a whole year of acting. Um, But immediately after graduating in 1985, James Mangold was was scooped up by none other than the Walt Disney company. Wow. Farming Cal arts for directors. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, And he said he was hired on as a writer with like the hope that someday he could be a director, but fairly early on he got Um, the go-ahead to make. Back in these days, Disney had a Sunday movie program 
where they would do like only made for TV movies in this program. And so they just had all of these directors basically churn out a bunch of like Sunday made for TV movies. And so they gave him this project and were like, here, you know, make one of these movies that we can put on TV. And his big idea was, I want it to be an almost silent film about inner city school children finding nature in the city, like finding a deer in the city, and then just being awestruck by that because they've never seen it before. And that's the whole movie. And at this time, (laughs) uh, the studio basically told him, like, this is a bad idea and you should not do this. And um, he said he started to... So this is during, like, Eisner and Katzenberg's rise, a pairing that we have talked about, again, several times on this podcast. Um, But he was a Mike Eisner hire. So Eisner reached out to him, brought him on board. And so he said, like, Jeffrey Katzenberg kind of had this beef with him straight off the bat just because of that, because the two were very competitive with each other. And so... In his contract, he had a clause for an assistant. And so no one else in his building had an assistant. And so Jeffrey Katzenberg came to him one day and was like, hey, we're going to need you to fire your assistant because, like, (laughs) you can't have one and no one else have one. And so James Mangold reached out to his uh agent and was like hey jeffrey katzenberg is telling me to like fire my assistant and the agent was like don't do it like it's in your contract that you can have an assistant like just you know tell him to fuck off basically and and so disney and so james mangold did and he said like immediately like one of the heads of disney like one of the chairmen came to his office and was like hey if Jeffrey Katzenberg told me to fire my assistant, I would do it. So, like, you just fucked up, bud. But James Mingold said, like, the next week, everyone in his office had an assistant. And he was like, I can't <laughs> even I can't even think about how much money that cost the studio. And he was like, so I knew right then that, like, I fucked up. And then he also said, like, he was in meetings with Jeffrey Katzenberg taking notes on this made-for-TV movie. And every time Katzenberg was would suggest something, he'd be like, no, I don't think so. And he was like, I didn't understand how it worked at the time. Like, I just, I was standing up for my art and not, like, listening to the studio boss. Um. So, and by the way, a lot of this information is coming from this book called My First Movie. Um, it's, a, it's 20 different directors talking about their first film. And it's super, super fascinating. And I suggest that everyone should buy it um but it's it's all interviews with these directors and it's edited by steven lowenstein um and i would suggest everyone go and buy that book can you buy it on amazon at the same time you buy heavy the movie i'm sure you can (laughs) double whammy right there um but he said like he vividly remembers one day being on set filming the scene and like uh he said a limo just pulled up in the middle of new york city they jumped out. They were like, we need to see you in the trailer. Pulled me in and just immediately fired me off of making the live action wow. TV movie. And he was like, I should have seen it coming. Like, And then they were telling me all these things like, there's no way you can finish on time. Your script is overwrought. Like all this shit. And he was like, why didn't anyone tell me? And he was like, they probably did. I just didn't listen. <laughs> but so after that, the v- next thing that he goes to work on is Disney moves him to work on their newest animated movie which is Oliver and Company. It's a movie that I love with 
all of my heart and soul. Just just to help uh, our audience realize, uh, the last time that I organized my top 50 movies of all time, which was a couple of years ago, but it was at number 43 for me. So like that's how much I love Oliver and Company. And just a little bit about that, because we will never, ever talk about Oliver and Company again. But, uh, Mike Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg did what they call the gong show in their early days at the studio. <laughs> and so they brought in like a gong, quote unquote. And then they said anyone in the whole studio that has an idea, like you could be an animated director, you could be a writer, you could be the janitor. Like if you, you have an James idea. James Gold's assistant. Exactly. <laughs> Literally. They were like, if you have an idea, you can come into us pitch it to us and if we hate it like we'll just gong you and get you the fuck out <laughs> so like literally like musker and clemens who are directors we'll talk about someday who did like little mermaid and aladdin and all that they had only done the great mouse detective at the time and so they came to jeffrey katzenberg and mike eisner and they were like hey we want to do treasure planet but it's in space and they were like like hit the fucking gong get the fuck out of here <laughs> and then they came back later and they were like i don't know what about like a mermaid and <laughs> you know jeffrey katzenberg is like but how big is this mermaid like i want to be clear <laughs> <laughs> and like he he's about to hit the gong and then he says how big is this mermaid? <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um but anyway so uh a, so someone went in to pitch Oliver and Company, and they were like Oliver Twist with dogs, and uh, they like Jeffrey Katzenberg and Mike Eisner liked it, and so originally the story started with the two Doberman characters like murdering Oliver's parents, and then Oliver Perfect. being hell bent on revenge for the rest of the movie. <laughs> Great children's movie. Um, but George Scribner, who became the director on Oliver and company and James Mangold like worked together to kind of salvage it and make it a little bit softer. And then James Mangold did say like someone came in after him to punch it up a little bit and make it a little funnier, but he saved a lot of like the story. Sydney, have you seen Oliver and company? Nope. Well, that makes me sad because <laughs> it's, it's a movie. I quite love Paige. You can shit on Oliver and company if you want. Why would I shit on Oliver and company? I don't know. I feel like you don't like it. I do like it. I think it's fun. It's cute. It's definitely not anywhere near the top Disney movie. But it's still cute. And why should I worry? Why should I care? Yeah, it's good stuff. Beautiful. Plus, our kitty's name is Oliver. So I have to love it. Hey. That's true. Not based on the movie, just as a random Coincidence. aside. <laughs> um. But anyway, and that movie was like a financial success. Like it beat out um, The Land Before Time opened the same week. And then it like Land Before Time opened at number one. Oliver and Company opened at number four. But eventually Oliver and Company beat it out financially. Um, but by the end of that year, James Mingle basically said, like, I thought that I was being brought into Disney to like shake things up and be like a young, exciting filmmaker. And instead, like, they just wanted me to be a cog in the machine. And so at the end of, like, my one-year contract, they came to me and they were like, get out of here. <laughs> You've been gonged. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they just roll into his office with the big gong. The gong. <laughs> and hey, they're like, hey, say James. anything. <laughs> we, just got, we just got a quick meeting. Hold on. Let's just roll this bad boy in here real quick. 
the Disney version of a guillotine. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Just a, a public execution by gong. We summon James Mangold to the table. I kind of <laughs> want a gong for this purpose now, just in like everyday life. I know. That'd just actually be like super useful. Bash it. Yep. Be like, I'm going to hit the gong if you don't shut up right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Uh, but so for a couple of years, Mingold said like, this is the most depressed he's ever been. Like he got his chance to make it in Hollywood and just completely failed, like flopped right out. And he was like, it's embarrassing to have made like a $20 million, you know, domestic grossing film and then be out on the street like the next year. Um, but in the early to mid nineties, he went back to school at Columbia university in New York to get his master's in film. And he said... Uh, Is that the school his dad professed at? No. Okay. <laughs> it's a different school. But he was basically like, okay, I wanna, I've want i done the Hollywood thing. Like, I want to get away from Hollywood sensibilities. And so I'm going to go to New York, and then I'm going to make, like, art house movies. Like, I want to get in on this indie scene that's kind of popping off right now. Because this is also the start, like we talked about in the Wes Anderson season, because... You know, we'll talk about a Sundance here in a second. That's just a year after Bottle Rocket. The short was at Sundance. But this is when, like, the Sundance scene is exploding for the first time. And indie cinema is really getting off the ground at this time. And so James Mangold was like, you know what? I want to be a part of that. And so at Columbia, he started to study under Milos Forman, um, who is a two-time Academy Award-winning director of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a legitimate masterpiece, and yeah. Amadeus, a movie I desperately want to see but have <gasps> not seen yet. Amadeus, Amadeus. Who's the director Amadeus, of that? Amadeus. Milos Forman, M-I-L-O-S-F-O-R-M-A-N. Milos? Um, and he said, like, Milos was very, very straightforward with him, and uh, they had a really good, like, collaborative effort where they would go back and forth on scripts, um, and it really helped him to make this movie. And he said, like, one of the nice parts about Columbia University was that he could make movies that he wanted to make that weren't necessarily, like, for a class or, like, for CalArts as a whole. Like, he just got to make it under this umbrella of Columbia. And so he began to develop films that he said were just for him and nobody else. And that's when he started production on Heavy. Um, but he still had to fund the entire thing himself. And so he put, he said everything he could into getting funding for That's heavy. That's why he put a, a dollar into a, a little tin every, every week. <laughs> so he could eventually get enough money to make the movie. Right, right. And then he was like, well, it's been three weeks. What do I have now? Ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but he begged, he said he like begged his parents, he begged his grandparents, he begged like his right, uh, one of his writing partners, parents, like he went to the studio, like he went to Columbia and begged them for money. Like he just tried to get money from everyone that he possibly could. Um, and he ended up like, <laughs> he said he had like a small painting of his dad's that his dad had given him at some point, And he like gave that to, 
the casting director to like pay him before they had any money. Wow. <laughs> he was like, here, this is worth like a good amount of money. So you can just have that as like payment for this. Oh my God. Um, You'd be really sinister. He gives him the painting. <laughs> he then kills his dad so that oh, it Jesus becomes Christ. super, super valuable. The artist is dead. There's never going to be any more of these pieces. It'll You're right. This millions. Is super sinister. What the fuck? <laughs> um good god we can probably just cut that one out (laughs) i liked it i liked it. okay keep it in then or not i don't know um but then they also and we'll we'll talk a little bit about the casting of this thing in, in a little bit but uh eventually it got to the point where he was able to go to people and be like we got a guy who has done a lot of Oliver Stone movies. We got like cinema legend Shelley Winters. We got the lead singer of Blondie. We got this up and coming star, Liv Tyler. Like, give us money, please, for the love of God. <laughs> um, and he said, like, he got the money. They made the film, but production was like extremely rough. He was very stressed. He was very depressed. Um, And he said, too, like, this is his one chance because there's no way that all these people are going to give him money ever again to be able to do this movie if he can't, like, deliver with this product this one time. Um, And he said, like, the shoot went over by a week and the crew all had, like, other places to be, other movies to work on. So they all tried to leave and he had, like, to go and beg, like, all these different members of the crew to get them to stay on for one more week. Uh, just to get this movie made. Um, And he said, like, when it was over, they had spent all their money. He had, like, $40,000 of debt on his credit card just for paying for things for the movie. Jeez. But it finally was done. Um, And that movie got into Sundance in 1995. Um, It did really well. It won two special jury prizes, one for drama and then one for directing. So he won a prize and the movie won a prize. Um, But he said, like, it wasn't really what was hip in the indie scene at the time because it's a very, like, slow kind of meditative movie about, like, normal people. And he said, you know, the indie scene, even though, like, people like to bash on Hollywood for making, like, popcorn movies and blockbusters, that the indie scene is, like, just as narrow and selective about what gets to be hip or not in that scene. And he was like, at the time this sort of movie wasn't hip, which is very funny because I feel like this movie is exactly what you see at Sundance every year yes. nowadays. <laughs> like, I think this year the you, you know, like a personal drama about like a real feeling person, because like this year it's Coda, which I've not seen yet, but it's like child of deaf, deaf adults mm-hmm. um, is like, and it's a movie just about, what that would be like then like last year minari was the big movie that popped out Mm -hmm. of sundance which is just like what if there was an asian family in the 70s on a farm and like the year you know like you could just keep going back and it's like these slow meditative like character studies um but he said for a while it was not like that and so this movie was seen as kind of out so even though he didn't even though he won those awards it didn't get picked up by a, a distributor it's so like that's February 1995. They're out of money. He doesn't think he's ever going to get another movie made. And then they got it into Cannes. They went to Cannes and he was able to sell it to like a couple of foreign markets like the UK and a couple of other 
different places, um, but the U.S. still had absolutely no interest. And then finally, by September of that year, they got it into Toronto. And then Liv Tyler had become enough of a big star that they could market the whole movie on her. And the U.S. That explains (laughs) all the promotional material. Oh, we'll talk (laughs) about that in a second. Um, And then, like, Cinepix was this company that eventually becomes Lionsgate. But they picked up the movie because of how big Liv Tyler was. Um, and finally released it, limited in New York City on June fifth, nineteen ninety six. I just thought of such a dumb joke. They <laughs> they they picked up the movie because of how big Liv Tyler was, but it wasn't too hard because she wasn't very heavy, even though she was in. Uh, heavy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs> I hate it. That was pretty bad. It. That was pretty bad. Oh, it was horrendous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. Don't cut that one. Oh, no, it's no, staying. No, keep it in, obviously. Or cut it. I don't know. All right, guys. Well, let's talk about this movie. Uh, Sydney, it's your director. It's the first episode. Why yeah. don't we get your initial thoughts? Watching this movie and then seeing the critical response, I think there was a lot more in this movie than what I picked up on the on the watching of this movie like I think there's a lot of like subtleties and maybe like some details that James Mangold added into this film that probably elevate this to much higher than what I probably think of this movie right now but yeah I think I missed a couple of the beats and it definitely has a bit of like that bottle rocket feel or maybe like he's not as practiced as he will be later on and so there are some like maybe pacing or just like director directorial choices that I think maybe miss a little bit but Overall, I I think I like it better than Bottle Rocket. I like it better than... An absolutely wild take. <laughs> I like it better than... Uh, uh, I don't know. I'm just thinking of all the first other movies. Yeah. I think I think that's all I'm going to say on this right now. Okay. That I think it's, pr- it's probably much better than I think it is. And maybe if I see like... A review or whatever that actually like breaks down like a lot more of the details. I think I could probably like this movie even more, but right now, I think it's a a good start for Mister Mangold. Sure, he's maybe not Mangold yet, maybe Man Bronze. I knew I knew where that was. Going. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Ethan? Uh. I liked it enough. Yeah. Which is kind of this like weird spot to be in. I feel like on a film because it's a lot easier to hate a movie or love a movie or even like, like a movie than it is to just be like, yeah. Um, (laughs) no thumbs up, no thumbs down. Yeah. I'm pretty neutral on it. It certainly strikes me as like, first-time director material you know Oh, absolutely 
yeah. Like if you sat me down in the theater and showed me this movie and you were like, how many films into this director's filmography do you think we are? I'd be like, there's absolutely zero chance that this goes beyond a first movie. Like it's just so, um, but I don't think that's necessarily a knock on it. I mean, I certainly like bottle rocket more than the, more than this, but I like this better than Eagle versus shark by a mile. Boo. Eagle versus shark <laughs> rules. Woo. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think of things to say initially because I have thoughts, obviously, as we go through. Right. I don't know. This this felt like a movie where the general gist of it to me is, like I talked about with his earlier short film, but just like Loser feels invisible and finally finds a way to like be seen which is something that i should identify with i feel like more than i do um because i i certainly would feel that way like in my high school years and yet it feels so specific somehow that i think it kind of misses on (laughs) the relatability factor of the general premise does that make sense unless you were also a pizza cook in a restaurant called pete and dolly's well i don't know if i go that far but like (laughs) then i could relate but other than that (laughs) no way i don't know it feels very like workplace and adult which i think you know by this point james mangold is an adult and so that's why the the shift of it has focused but like I don't know. To me, by the time I was an adult, like I wasn't as worried about those things. And so it just doesn't relate to me as much as it would have. I mean, there's a reason why a coming of age movie is going to wreck me like nine out of 10 times (laughs) because my my childhood was a little rough, but like my adulthood has not been all that bad. So I don't know. It, it, It was a hard movie for me to latch on to emotionally. Um, I think that point... Oh, keep going. Oh, no. I was just going to say, like... But still, I find it interesting. Yeah. And I'll I'll give you, you know... This is maybe the most tired line that could possibly be said about James Mangold. But I'm going to say it anyways. Which is, the guy, whether intentional or not, makes westerns, like, almost 100% of the time. (laughs) <laughs> and you know this is a, a very far cry from what you would think of as a traditional western and like yet thematically it seems to be up there you know with the genre and um i find that very interesting that even from the very beginning like in copland he kind of sets out to make it more of a western but that obviously has like guns and bandits you know and sheriffs and stuff whereas like shooting and shit exactly (laughs) where like i don't know that this was necessarily set out to be but his sensibility is so mired in the genre i think that um it's an interesting first movie on that point Hmm. so cool page i thought it was fine 
I mean, yep. <laughs> what I what I meant to say is, Liv Tyler, oh my god, she carried this whole movie. I can see that this movie was just created for her. I'm so glad there's a lot of Liv Tyler in this movie. What would we do without all this Liv Tyler? Wow, it's crazy. It's like she was just slotted into this movie so well. Like, she was just born for this role. I wonder if he had her in mind from the beginning. That's... I can't tell if you're actually sincere and excited about Liv Tyler <laughs> or you fucking hate her. <laughs> no, I have no problems about Liv Tyler, but when we get into the cast, I'm sure Ethan will have plenty of notes about Liv Tyler oh, and her involvement in Tyler this movie. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just heavy sarcasm for her involvement in this movie. But anyways, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it was fine. It was slow. Real slow. Yeah, it's definitely which a, is, a slower paced movie. Yeah, and I feel like I've been watching a lot of slower paced movies recently, but um, and and by slower pace I mean, no, let me rephrase that. I've been watching a lot of movies recently where not a lot happens, but it still feels more intense. So, Ethan, what's a good example of that? What's one that we just watched? That was like. Did, did you guys know Kate and Leopold is two hours long? Oh no! <laughs> Sorry, I just I was looking at the lengths of his films because we're talking about that, and, yeah, and yeah, Heavy's yeah. like a good hour forty. Yeah, I'm astounded that Kate and Leopold is two hours long. <laughs> two hours too short. Let's go for four, baby. Um, <laughs> Oh, like Death uh, at a Funeral. Like Death at a Funeral is one day, but it feels a lot quicker and just works better and feels like a good pace compared to this, which is over the course of actually a long amount of time, but it burns so slowly. Ooh, yeah. But anyways, Liv Tyler is a goddess, and thank God she blessed this movie. <laughs> You're so mad about Liv Tyler. I really Very am fine with Liv Tyler. I mean, every performance I've ever seen her in, which is three now, I think, right? Maybe? I don't know. It may be more than that. Oh, jeez. She does the exact same thing every single time, so good on her for nailing the same character, no matter Hold the up. situation. So I, I think we finally have an actor for all of us that we don't actually hate, but have to hate now because of this podcast. <laughs> Ethan has Steve Martin. I don't want to be known for hating Steve Martin. He I don't hate that's, Steve that's Martin. That's not our fault. Paige hates Liv Tyler now. Sorry, yeah. but this is what's bestowed this is the upon reality. you. Yep. And I have a Ben Stiller. So. Yep. Yeah, but you actually hate Ben Stiller. Well. Well. <laughs> okay, wait, Paige, you have seen Liv Tyler in. Lord heavy, of the Rings. Obviously. Heavy. Right. And then Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And then The Incredible Hulk. Yeah. Which she's really bad in. Yeah. And then Ad Astra. Oh, which yeah, is that's a movie right. You hate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible movie. Oh, Ad Astra is one of the worst I movies I've ever seen. Interesting. Um, is that the one with um, Brad Pitt? Brad Pitt. Okay. BP. In space. Space it's, baboons, though. Oh. It's, it's terrible. You can't. Who's space pirates. And space baboons. Uh, Brad Pitt is a space baboon. Oh. <laughs> He's and not the that pirate. would be amazing. Uh, the director is someone we legitimately could talk about someday, which oh. is James Gray. Like, Ooh. I would be down. 
He's got a weird filmography. I'd be down for it. <laughs> Just keep the James train going. <laughs> the James and color scheme. Oh, train. yeah, oh yeah, God. yeah. Boom, we got a theme. <laughs> Hello and, ro- and welcome to discovering directors whose first name is James and last name has a color, has a color. in it. <laughs> it's a very short podcast. <laughs> uh well, let's talk a little bit about the cast. And I mean, I think we should just throw it. I had it at the last, but let's throw it up at the top. Let's talk about Liv Tyler. As you have Callie, to, because, because everywhere Paige this movie has everywhere this movie is listed, Liv Tyler's at the top, because obviously she is the most important and main character of this entire film. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on. I didn't believe you, but you're totally right. She is the first billing on the on the DVD case. She has to be. Yeah. And on Letterboxd. <laughs> I'm glad that you ran out to go check. <laughs> well, I swore it was it was not it's, her on the top of the list. Instead of just looking it up. Well, I think well, it I depends can't, on the poster. I can't look up DVD case of Heavy. You or absolutely can can't, because that's what I did earlier when we were talking about it. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, I'm just out of breath for nothing. It is so <laughs> wild how much of this movie is advertised on Liv Tyler. Like, to the point where, you know, we did a bit about the DVD cover earlier, but did you look at the special features on the DVD, Sydney? I did! I totally <laughs> did! I was like, oh, maybe, like, we're going to talk about James Mangold at all. And it's just a Liv Tyler biography. I was like, what? Why? <laughs> and I told Paige, oh, shit. So I opened it, because it has biography on the DVD menu, it's like play, scene select, yeah. Credits, there's literally three biography. options. <laughs> yes, and this is one of them. And so I clicked on biography, and I came up with a Liv Tyler biography, and I was like, "Oh, okay. they've got biographies for all the actors. How cool!" Right, exactly. Because there's <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. on the bottom, there's like a more section, and so Paige got up and went into the bathroom, and I clicked the more section to go to the next biography, and it's just. A list of Liv Tyler's filmography know, by the year 1999, and that's it. That's all the special features on this DVD. <laughs> it's that just was so Liv crazy. Tyler. <laughs> she gets all this credit for every single line, just going, "Oh, Victor, I'm so sorry." Okay, okay. Every line. Every Listen, line. she's not bad in this movie. She's it's not the same performance bad. in Lord of the Rings and in every movie that I've ever seen her in. It's the exact same performance. What? She does not change That's her face. That's a little bit of a wild take. It's not. She doesn't change her face. She doesn't change her inflections. They're, it's all good. It's like She doesn't like, have... She has too much face to change her face. That, she, she can't make other facial expressions. <laughs> That's no excuse. It's like you copy and pasted Your the face same... face reduction surgery. <laughs> It's like you copy and pasted the same exact freaking character into all these movies. Or at least the direction that she was given for all these characters. It's the exact same. I think... Barely speak under your breath and just a little bit quieter than that and deliver every single line like that. I think Liv Tyler is good in this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Pages of seven, but I think she's good. I think she sells the idea of like the work. I don't know. It's such a specific needle to thread because it's like somebody who has to have this job 
and is just looking to like keep themselves entertained and so gives attention to you know someone who doesn't get a lot of attention which is a very specific character type and yet it feels like she hits it perfectly not saying that it's like a great performance like but i think it's good enough yeah i mean this was also pretty much her first time acting yeah it's like her second one because she had gotten another movie on the same day that james mangold auditioned her which for what would have been her first movie she went and she got hired for a different movie and so he had to wait so he actually pushed back the filming of this movie by four months to wait for Liv tyler um so this is her second film performance um, but then this was the first one to actually debut, I think. Something like that. That might be wrong. We've talked. No? Okay, so she did do Silent Fall first in 1994. But this is her. Yeah, so this is her second performance and her uh, second film role. I think she did fine. Yeah. I think she skipped her uh, acting class on how to pretend to be a dead body. Because there's definitely, like, <laughs> okay, but funny moments. I don't think scene. she's supposed to be dead. Like, she's supposed really? to be savable. Because it's a fantasy yeah. about him saving her. Yeah. But her, like, her lips were, like, all purple. But he does save her, in theory. Right? right? Yeah. She wakes back up. She was just unconscious. Okay, sure. You don't want to have this fight right now? (laughs) I I don't think I ever want to have this fight. An hour into the episode about Heavy, you don't want to fight about whether Liv Tyler was supposed to be dead or not? (laughs) About fantasy Liv Tyler being dead or not? Yeah, I think I'm good on that. Let's talk about some of the other actors. All right. So, our leading man is played by Pruitt Taylor Vince. He plays Victor a pizza chef at his parents diner um and this is pruitt taylor vince's first like leading role in a movie and we'll talk a little bit about some of the drama on set and and why that matters in a second um but james mangold said like for this and copland he wrote basically these two screenplays kind of back to back And for both of them, as we'll see next week, he wanted to create a protagonist who's largely silent. So that, like, the other characters have a lot of life. Uh, I didn't mean that. (laughs) Wow. But, like... You bully. (laughs) Sincerely. But, like, the other characters can have a lot of spark in life, and then the director is kind of playing with the lead character... um, and having them like not speak a lot, but having the way that they view the world speak for them. Um, and so I think it's a really fascinating performance. I don't know that it fully works for me. And the way that he twitches his eyeballs is legitimately unsettling. And he does it all the time. Yeah, I have no idea how he does it. <laughs> Was that a director choice? Do you know? What? The eyeball twitching? Yeah. Did James no Mangold idea. tell him to do that? I bet you, I bet you Pruitt just like one day after shooting, 
Like what? <laughs> Walked up to James and be like, "Hey, look what I just figured out. How to look do. what I can like, do. <laughs> put that in. We're gonna put that in. <laughs> That's We're gonna get that in weekly. right now. Because <laughs> they do that finished. every other scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they actually had finished recording. That's why they went a week over in re- in uh, filming to just put his twitching eyes in and everything again. <laughs> I don't know, like. You did mention that he's super silent and like a quiet character in this film. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a it's a very thin line between not like talking too much and talking too little. And I felt like his character talked too little. Yeah. Like there were a couple scenes and I was just like, "Man, just like say something, say like anything." And the conflict in this moment would be resolved way easier. Well, well, I mean, the conflict of the movie is predicated on him not saying anything. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> to I be just... fair. But I do understand what you mean when you say, like, it is almost distracting how little he talks. And, like, I get that the idea of the character is that he is this guy who just does not feel confident and has no like self value. And so he doesn't feel like saying anything is going to add anything to the conversation or, you know, give anything to the world. And so he doesn't talk as much, but yeah, it's to the point where it's like distracting for the movie. Like he should say a little bit more. And I, and I guess again, I haven't seen it yet, but I would guess that Copland is going to get around that problem by having there be like action and crime stuff happening. Right. Whereas in this movie it's very like there's nothing else happening. It's just this guy and his relationship with the world and so it's like not you're so focused on what he's saying and what excuse me, what he's not saying. Yeah. I was going to bring up a like a good example of a main character who doesn't talk a lot is mm-hmm. like Mando in The Mandalorian in the first season. Like, he talks, like, very little, but you're, like, always rooting for him, pretty much. Yeah. And so, like... I this guess, is like, where I reveal I haven't seen The Mandalorian. Oh, it's like I know. Really good, <laughs> it's real I know. good, though. Uh, okay, so then we have, like, two-time Academy Award winning Shelley Winters. But she plays Dolly, Victor's mom, and the owner of this diner. Uh, and aging woman kind of in in ill health i would say mm-hmm. so here's one of the fun stories from production that i will talk about because i think it illustrates a inherent difference between james mangold and our last director frank oz <laughs> just to show that we're in a new era um but the first day that both uh victor and dolly were on set together you know, Pruitt, Taylor, Vince, and Shelley Winters were on set together, <clears throat> which was like the third day of production. They went and they had like a private meeting in Shelley Winters' dressing room. Ooh. And then, and James Mangold was like, <laughs> I have no idea what happened in there. Like, I don't know what they talked about, whatever. But they came back out and they did the first hospital scene, which is Shelley Winters is supposed to be telling him a story about his childhood and he is like kind of zoning out and looking at the TV. 
And he said in the middle of the shot, Shelly Winters just started yelling. I will quote her directly because we have the book. We have our sources. Right. We have our sources. Uh, But she said, stop fucking up my scene, amateur, like yelling. Wow. (laughs) And uh, James Mangold was like completely uncalled for. And Pruitt Taylor Vince got super upset and like stormed out. And so James Mangold was like, okay, I'm going to have to handle this. So he sat in and he did, like, he talked to Doll, uh, Shelly Winters and he was like, what happened? And Shelly Winters was like, well, in my trailer, Pruitt Taylor Vince told me he thinks he's as good as Marlon Brando. <laughs> and they're like, I need to respect him. And he kept looking away from me and looking at the fucking TV while I'm delivering my line. And James Mingle was like, yeah, he's looking at the TV because I told him to look at the TV because that's what his character's supposed to do. Like, Jesus Christ. So he said, like, he sat in for Victor. They just filmed all the shots of Dolly and then let Shelley Winters go. And then he went down to talk to Pruitt Taylor Vince and was like, hey, like, come up. I'm going to sit on the bed. Like, I'll be Dolly. And he was like, did you say that? And Pruitt Taylor Vince is like, I don't, like, who fucking cares if I, what I say? Like, this is my chance for a leading role. And like, it was disrespectful. And James Mangold was like, you know what? It was. And so eventually he went to Shelly Winters and he was like, hey, you need to fix this shit because like he is the lead actor and he deserves to feel good about it. And so uh, the story is that she called the entire cast and crew together and was like, hey, Pruitt Taylor Vince, like, just so you know, uh, I'm going to read it again. This is this is <laughs> this is James Mangold's retelling of the story. But um, she said, I once told George Stevens that he didn't know how to talk to actors. And I told Stanley Kubrick that he was an anal retentive prick. I told James Dean that he was going to kill himself, and I told Montgomery Cliff that he'd better stop fucking with his face or his career would be over. I told Roman Plansky that he was a pervert. I told Gene Hackman that he was a belligerent asshole who treated women like shit. And I told Robert De Niro, and I told Al Pacino, and I told John Ford, and I told Marilyn, and I told Burt Lancaster, and I told Charles Lofton. And so, Pruitt, you have joined a pantheon of the greatest men in the history of American cinema who I've insulted. Wow. <laughs> and he said, like... Uh, Pruitt Taylor Vince could only laugh and then like all issues on set were resolved after that essentially like everyone just got along and they were able to keep making the movie Um, and James Mangold was like that's the shit they don't tell you about directing a movie that you have to deal with but like I'm so glad I was able to handle that so those dynamics and everything I mean and we've seen directors who do not handle those dynamics well correct (laughs) just let their producers get thrown into a lake (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine Wes Anderson, like, watching an actor tell another actor, like, you're fucking asshole? Like, I don't know what he, how he would even handle that, you know? <laughs> He's like, you uh, know what, this this movie's a bad idea. I'm, I'm going to go do something else. <laughs> I'm going to go hang out with all of my friends who say nice things to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and I mean, here's the thing. James Mingold says that Shelley Winters, like, deservedly, because she's this big, you know, two-time Academy Award winner and also two-time Academy Award nominee. Uh, but she showed up on set like, the star of this movie is here. And I think she is just fine in this movie. It's not a big role, but, like, maybe tone it down a little bit, Shelley Winters. 
<laughs> I agree. In retrospect, you it's know, rest in peace and all that. But at the time, <laughs> tone it down a little bit. <laughs> uh, and then to round out our cast, we have Debbie Harry, the lead singer of, of Blondie, Blondie. As Dolores, uh, our, you know, disenfranchised waitress. And then Joe Gravasi plays Leo, who is just a drunk that hangs out at the bar all the time. Thoughts on Debbie Harry or Joe Gravasi? I just liked how she handled the end with the broken glass. Oh, I did the quote wrong. Never mind. <sighs> you want to try it again? Oh, I, I don't know if okay, I do. Okay. I, okay. I, I get what you're doing. No, you got this. I believe Um. You. Okay, let's see. I just really liked her performance when she was a barkeep and she handed out cups with all of mm-hmm. her heart and they were glass, heart of glass. Hey. <laughs> I need help. Someone someone do a better do a better joke for me about Blondie's music. Nope, that's staying ah! in. <laughs> Have you heard that song, Sydney? Probably. It goes like this. Oh, it's coming in from both ears. glass. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I've, yeah, I've yeah, heard. yeah, yeah. You don't even need the words for that shit. That's a good one. Uh, yeah, again, they're both fine. I mean, I think maybe Pruitt Taylor Vince is the best performance in the movie, but like to me, followed by Liv Tyler. And then these three are all kind of just like... They're... Not as important, right. And so they don't have... To, to call it an acting decathlon, again, acting just decathlon. to go back to the DVD cover, is uh, a bit of an exaggeration, I would say. <laughs> oh, you know what? There's five actors here. Two yeah. of them. Each of them could do two events. And then the acting <gasps> yeah. decathlon is complete. It's completed. Is it against another like movie and all of their actors? Or are they against... <laughs> that's all it is they See, just had to pick another that, movie to compete against yeah this is the kind of thing that will that kept me up like what what does an acting decathlon even mean yeah that's how fair. do you compete in one how do you win one <laughs> all right uh let's talk about this plot very briefly because again not a lot happens um which is fine but so, movie kind of kicks off the inciting. Wait, 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 hey, hey. Oh, wait, wait, wait. What? Ethan, we're Before five we talk seasons about the plot, in. We're five seasons and a bonus episode in, and I, I can't handle it. Before we talk about the plot, Paige is going to give us a 10 word summary, no more, no less, of the movie Heavy. Paige, go ahead. <coughs> Heavy. Lonely man fails to understand what he is deserving of. Hey. Heavy. Yeah, that's well, the plot summary. Let's talk about the plot. Yeah. Okay, sounds good. I Here we say... go. Good? No, no, no. I was just... He's just vibing. Noise. 
I was just making notes. <laughs> uh, so I would say the inciting incident of the plot is that Dolly hires Callie, which is Liv Tyler's character. Not sure that I said that. Um, as a new, young, fresh face to help around their little pub, uh, Pete and Dolly's pub. Um, and it seems right off the bat, Victor is kind of enamored with her, with the idea of her anyways. Um, and I think ostensibly Dolly admits to Victor, like, I kind of brought her in so that, you know, you could maybe have a chance with her. (laughs) Uh, but we introduced all of our characters, you know, and, um, that's what I got to say. There's plot. It's there. I mean, so like Victor and Dolly are obviously very close. And I think what the movie is trying to set up is that Victor doesn't feel like he can leave this kitchen. I mean, James Mangold talks about like the window of the diner being a very important plot point. When they found a diner that had a window where that's the little window that Victor like delivers his pizzas through and he's not supposed to leave the back. He's not supposed to, you know, hand people things through the door. Like, he has to hand the food through the window. It's like, that's kind of his only way of interacting with anyone out in the bar. Until it's late at night and they're essentially closed. And then he, like, goes over to his little booth in the corner. And just sits and waits for his mom to be done with everything. Um, So what they're setting up, to me, is, you know, Victor's this invisible guy. He just gets the job done. The people that are around him will talk to him, but, you know, no one really takes any special interest in him until Callie comes in and she, you know, whether for whatever reason, ignores kind of the social graces of, you know, I don't think she understands, I guess, that he's not someone that is super personable. Um, And so she kind of pursues that friendship with him very quickly right off the bat. Um, which starts to change his worldview a little bit, I would say. Yeah. And then, I mean, so Victor has this routine, right? So it's like, wake up in the morning, make his mom a big old breakfast. Walk which the is dog. adorable. It is adorable. Even though he hates making breakfast. Right. Clearly. <laughs> like, walks the dog. You know, they go to work. He does the job. They get off work. They have to help deal with, like, Leo the drunk, and then he goes to bed. Um, Who, like, randomly sleeps in his room one night? <laughs> yeah, it's very odd. Yeah. But I feel like, you know, Weird it's beat. they they know this guy well Small enough. Small town that, vibes kind of thing. Yeah. Right, exactly. I think that's probably one of the <clears throat> bigger themes that James Mangold wants to cover in this movie. And it's kind of that like over-reliance on content contentness like i think victor's character is like eh, my life is not good at all but it could be way worse and so i don't want to try anything to change it because it could potentially be worse than what it already is and so i'm just gonna do keep doing the same thing and try to keep this going forever Apparently. Right. That's the thing is like, I, I don't think he minds the routine at all. Like he may be sad and, and mm-hmm. certainly it feels very lonely. I mean, the movie is set up to make you feel lonely. 
Um, and yet, like I, like you said, Sydney, I think the worst thing that could happen to him is a big change, right. which we see, obviously, a little bit later in the movie. But um, as part of this whole, you know, getting to know each other thing, uh, Victor takes a couple of pictures of Callie on her camera making some pizza dough. And later, when he's sorting through them, he sets one aside for himself, which is a little creepy. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but, you know. <laughs> and then over time, uh, see, I think I think Wikipedia gets it wrong, if I remember correctly. The, but the ordering of the movie? Yes, because I believe yeah, absolutely it does. Dolly gets sick first. So she has, like, she has a heart attack. And that same day, but like, I don't know. Do we even want to talk about like these weird little fantasies? So he has a fantasy on the way home that Liv Tyler is drowned and he like saves her. Yeah. And then when he gets home, his mom has had a heart attack and he has to save her as well. Yeah. What do you guys read into that? (laughs) I don't know. It felt very weird. Like it was like part of a different movie. He he imagines that he sees her drowned, apparently still revivable, and then she like her ghostly. <laughs> well, spirit... we can argue about that. <laughs> <laughs> her ghostly spirit kind of just like keeps showing up, and there's like moments in this movie that feel like the movie's gonna take a turn and become this like weird like suspense kind of thriller movie. And mm. then it just, like, keeps going. Like, when and... she, like, walks through the hallway and you're like, the fuck? <laughs> right! Like, yeah. what what movie did I sign up for? It was very slow. And suddenly now there's, like, Ghost Liv Tyler haunting, haunting this man. And, like, the music starts getting, like, super, like, suspenseful. And, like, the camera shots end mm-hmm. up be- being, like, really tense. And, and then, like, it doesn't happen. Like nothing happens for most then, of the movie, and then for the next hour and a half, nothing happens. <laughs> yeah, and so that those moments kind of threw me off, and I feel like there's maybe that's kind of what I was alluding to on my first impressions that there's like more to this movie that I didn't pick up on. Yeah, like I I wasn't entirely sure what what all all of that meant. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure either, because it feels like a weird premonition thing, especially since it happens, like, the same day his mom has his heart attack. But then the other times that it happens, I don't think are really, like, I don't know. They're not setting up anything, I guess. They're just, like, these little fantasies that he has that, like, the the ghost of Liv Tyler is around. (laughs) Yeah. Until the, like, the final shot of the movie... And she's, like, in bed, like, some morning. And, like, the dress that she's in when she's, like, spooky ghost is, like, on her, like, in her closet or whatever. Oh, is it? I didn't even notice that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was, like, on, like, it was, like, hanging, like, on the door. Hmm. I assume, like, she was, like, going to wear that dress that day is what I picked up on. And I assume, like, she then, like, tries to commit suicide that day. Oh, Jesus. That's what that's I not, assume. That's not what I would read at all, but that would be wild. Well, because, like, at the end of this, like, we're kind of jumping no, jump, a lot of the sure. boring bits. But, I mean, like, she 
like later on in the movie she like really wants to talk to Dolly because like she's like in a really conflicting spot. Like she says she feels directionless. She maybe got pregnant and like right. she's like hoping to get some help or like any sense of direction. And like she never gets it because Dolly's dead and she has like no other person to turn to. And so I kind of interpreted that as like she didn't know what to do anymore. I f- I felt like the ending was very hopeful for her. Really? <laughs> because she talks to Victor and she's like, "Yeah, I think I'm going to go back to school like you know, I'm going to go try and make something of my life." And doesn't she smile, I thought a little at the end? When there when that I think one of the cooler shots in the movie when it's kind of like scrolling through all the characters and showing them changed from right. the beginning. I thought she smiled a little bit. I could be wrong, but Oh. I thought she was very sad at the end of that. Okay. Movie. Wow. Different reads, I guess. Yeah. I I was also opening to chalk up that weird premonition stuff to like <laughs> basically like first director jitters. <laughs> like you didn't exactly know like what how that like that tone would translate to film. Or, like, Hmm. how it would play out in the rest of it. But, yeah. Interesting that it was... We had such different opinions on it. And I'm probably way off, but whatever. This is interesting. She looks the same through the whole movie. Sad, I guess. (laughs) Here comes Paige on the Liv Tyler hatred again. We shouldn't even ask. You open that bottle. I can't tell. I don't know. I I feel like, kind of like Sydney said in the beginning of this, maybe there's something more going on than we're all grasping, but I just read it for face value, and I was like, she's going back to school. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's it. Me too. (laughs) I, I was thinking when I was like, maybe I'm missing some of this, is that some stuff makes a lot more sense in your own head than when you try to explain it to other people. Sure. What sure. if that's what happened with like James Mangold? He's like, Oh, I have this like great, like story that like connects a lot to itself. And just like, maybe it didn't, it's, it's harder to connect when you're on the outside looking in. Yeah. I can understand that. Let's move forward in the plot. So, Okay. <laughs> Dolly gets sick. She has a heart attack. She's in the hospital. As part of this, one night, like, Dolores takes Victor to this airfield and tries to make out with him. He's not super into it, so they stop. But then, I, th- I think it is after that that Dolly dies, right? I think no. so. No? Really? You think you think the Callie Dolly... trip happens first? Well, I thought it was like they they first go to the hospital. Yeah. Uh, like there's that little chat scene with the random guy at the cafeteria. About. Yeah, there's that the random guy at the cafeteria. Yeah. And then I thought like the next scene was him like going up to like her room and trying to visit and then finding her gone because she like had passed away. In the oh, room. you think it? You think she goes? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Because cause isn't it like earlier, like before, uh, Dolores rides with Victor. She asks him like where Dolly is, 
and he just says, oh, they're still doing tests or whatever. Okay. Even though by that point, she's passed. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I think you're right, Sydney. Okay, okay. Sydney's right. Dolly's dead, and then our airplane scene. Uh, and at this point, so Victor is uh, living a little Arrested Development style. He's left the breakfast from the morning still on the table. The dog is kind of fending for itself. The dishes haven't been made in a while. Made. Um, cleaned? I don't know. And he's uh, pretty depressed by this whole situation of his mom dying, which is reasonable. But notably, he tells no one uh, later, as we find out, because he just doesn't want anything to change for a little bit longer. Um, But Callie is having problems with her boyfriend, who, by the way, is like, we didn't shout him out earlier, but he is the front man of the Lemonheads, which is a... Band I love that I've candy. Legitimately, oh. never heard of. Lemon hands, real tasty. No yeah. idea about the band. They might be tasty too. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> he was cast. Uh, James Mingled says so that he like hopefully could get a little more clout also towards the <laughs> towards the casting. Um, Turns out all you need is Liv Tyler, though. <laughs> yeah, all you need. Uh, and then. So Callie and her boyfriend are having trouble. One day she asks Victor for a ride home. They stop at the airport and they kiss once and then Callie wants to go home. And then it's not too long after that that uh, she wants, Callie really wants to go see Dolly in the hospital. Um, And so she shows up at Victor's house and finds not only has he just been living in squalor, but also that he has this like weird picture of her hanging on his fridge. Oh man. And that scene earlier, it's so I was, brutal. I was so afraid that Victor was going to eat that toast. Oh yeah. So <laughs> I was like, Oh no, please don't please. No. Yeah. It, it, it's a threatening scene to be sure. <laughs> but he takes Callie to the cemetery. So she finds out that Dolly is dead, gets very frustrated and then soon after that, Dolores and Leo also find out that Dolly is dead. Um, but they leave the bar. Victor realizes that everything is going to change. So he kind of freaks out, breaks down, um, starts trashing the place. Uh, and kind of mid him trashing the place, Callie shows back up with her boyfriend to collect her last paycheck. Um, but they have kind of this special touching moment where Callie and Victor talk about uh, you know her plans to go back to college and he promises to come visit and after that Victor kind of gets to have this moment like the I, I do like that it's the dog that comes up to him this cute little what what kind of dog is it Paige? A Boston Terrier yeah this cute little Boston Terrier like comes up to him and like climbs into his lap and is like hey we gotta figure this shit out man <laughs> like um but but then Victor starts to kind of put his life back together. He gets to clean up the breakfast, cleans up all the dishes, and uh, seems to be progressing in the right way. And and like I said, I think that that's you know James Mingled's way of saying like he didn't necessarily need to be with Callie. And I was really nervous for a lot of this movie that they would 
end up together or it would like try and say that they were going to be like a romantic match because I think that the movie would be lying if it said that you know and so this sort of also just be super cliche well yeah that too but like this situation where they don't end up together but still he gets to take some of the confidence given to him by the situation and help to rebuild some of his self-confidence um is quite nice and then of course the last scene is he's at this grocery store and uh, starts talking to another woman which you know was inconceivable to believe that he would do at the beginning of this movie so we get to see the effects of callie on victor even after she's left left this mortal coil because because apparently sydney thinks she commits suicide i i thought that's what it meant i think that is a wild take but okay you could be right i don't know all right do you have any critiques on on anything constructive I, I, I do but it's more about like a theme or lesson so oh okay 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 we'll I'll, get I'll hold it let's talk about the reception so after finally releasing in the united states this movie made nine hundred forty-one thousand dollars uh on a budget that james mangled estimates to be around three hundred forty thousand. if you count the forty thousand of credit card debt that he had, <laughs> he, had he's he said he gathered about three hundred thousand dollars to make the movie from all the places he begged and then, you know, went 40,000 in the hole over that. So, but this movie, I mean, made money and uh, made money for him. And he attributes that to this one particular interview in the New York times um, written by Jamie Bernard that he said did two things. Like one, it said a lot of really nice things about the movie, but it also like in its review was like, go into this movie expecting a slow movie. And so he said, like, that made people more receptive to the movie. Um, and he said there was this one theater in New York that was just packed, like, every night with people trying to see it because of this review. Um, and he, he says he, at the premiere for Copland, he got to go up to Jamie Bernard and, like, thank them for their review and be like, hey, your review, like, made my career and also, like, saved my life because I had no money and I spent all of my capital on this like you gave me a second chance um which is really interesting i would say but uh overall this movie got an 86 percent on rotten tomatoes from reviews at the time so uh let's talk about themes and lessons you guys have themes and lessons from this movie i have a negative one okay an issue with this movie and other movies that is still ongoing and an issue in our society today. So I feel Let's like I'll talk it. about it. Uh, there is an issue with this movie where this man, it's presented that he only feels validated and worthy when a beautiful skinny person tells him he is so. And that's an issue because yeah. that's a big issue in our society and in a lot of filmographies, that's like a huge plot point. Um, so that's something that is problematic with this film. So... That's just, I don't know if that's a theme or lesson. <laughs> I would say that's more of just like an issue. That can be the next slash after themes and lessons issues. Um, but yeah, so I think that's a really big one. And I don't think that, like I tried to look at it from other angles of like, oh, but like he found that value like himself along his journey. And it's like, no, like he was just lusting for this gal and she decided to give him the time of day because she thought that she could do that 
and that she was the right person to do that. So, yeah, just a problem. Yeah, I I do agree with you. Yep. On a, like, yeah. <laughs> well, I do. I do agree with you on, like, a general level that it is problematic. I don't necessarily think that, like, James Mangold was trying to say the only thing that can, like, solve your self-confidence is being talked to by Liv Tyler. No, and I don't Liv think Tyler's that's, caliber. like... Right, right, right. No, I'm not, no, I'm not yeah. trying to say that that's what you're saying. Yeah, um, that's just what happened, and that's the movie right, he it's chose just, to create, so... Yeah, it's yeah. unfortunate that the the theme he was going for manifested itself this way. Yeah. Well, I think this movie has an interesting relationship with, like, I guess the physical makeup of the lead character, yeah. I would Can we say. Can say eating disorder? I yeah. mean, he, he probably he, I don't does, even know if but... it's that, but... I mean, yeah. he does, in his breakdown, he does eat a lot you know yeah i well i think that was like one of like the big scenes is when he goes home from the hospital after he finds out his mom his mom has passed away and like he like his comfort isn't the people around him it's those donuts that he has right so i i do think the movie is trying to say like fuck fat phobic culture and i think like specifically when it's talking about like the weight loss shakes and stuff like that like yeah clearly i think the movie is trying to position that as like bullshit and something that we should be mad about yeah um that he feels like he needs to go through that and that he what's nice to me is in the movie, he doesn't really lose any weight. Like, they have the two scale scenes. They're practically ident- identical. Um, so he doesn't have to lose weight to gain self-worth. Like, the self-worth comes from just realizing that he is capable of being loved and capable of being valued. And I think that that is, um, like, a good thing to have. Yeah. Well, and I think, like... Because I think the theme he's going for, because like you kind of said, Ethan, is he's trying to say that this person has value. Like, it doesn't matter what his body exists as. Like, right. he has value because he's a kind person or he's he makes a mean sweet. Pizza. He makes a mean ass pizza. He can Even bake though, like a motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, if we're being honest. It doesn't look the that shots good. Of the pizzas. Yeah. The shots of the pizzas he were making <laughs> did not look as appetizing. Yeah, it looked like bar pizza, like your typical bar yeah. pizza. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, so I think like that's like the theme is like he is supposed to have worth outside of his body, but it's just unfortunate how it plays out, and right, it could have right. been done differently. So yeah, it's it's yeah. a societal problem that manifests in the movie, and not like a movie specific problem. Yeah, I if guess I'm, if I'm gauging what you're saying, kind of yeah, yeah. Sydney, do you have any themes and lessons? Um, I mean, I already mentioned the his unwillingness to to change anything in his life. It's yeah, like I, I think that was a big theme that James Mangold wanted to cover. <sighs> lessons, 
What do I think James Mangold learned from making this movie? It's always hard to do on the first movie. Yeah. Honestly, I may I may try to like watch his later movies before we actually come up to him. Yeah. So hopefully I can I can get that reference point again. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Um I'll just quote James Mangold from this book again uh, from the my first movie it is cheating cheating. (laughs) Um, but he said his biggest takeaway was like don't despair which what he means is like he was in the pit with this movie like he was so depressed he said there were nights where like he was so tired that he couldn't sleep like it was so bad and um he just said like every time that i felt awful about a day Later, I would turn around and be like, oh, actually, that was our best day of shooting. Like, Or every time he thought there was a problem with an actor, like it would turn around and it would, in the end, like work out and benefit him. And so he was like, any time that I start to get low now, I can just remember like, hey, those failures on Heavy helped to make that movie a success. And so like, I can't get super upset. And also just from the whole experience, he was like, when I got kicked out of Disney, I thought my career was over. And instead, like, I just kind of, I turned it around, went back to school and, you know, saved my career. And also, I mean, we'll talk about it in the way, way future. Uh, but it is very funny to me that he was fired off of Disney when he wanted to be, like, a director that shake, shook things up and didn't do everything, like, by the books. And then ostensibly they hire him to do Indiana Jones 5 like 30 years later so that he could shake things up and not do things by the book. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so he said like his biggest lesson with this was like just see it through, don't despair, see the value in the dark times as well. Uh, Which I think is valuable advice not just for making movies but also for Life. life. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, special thanks to Michael Thompson for our logo. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Uh, If you have thoughts on Heavy or just James Mangold in general, uh, you can email us at discoveringdirectorspodcast at gmail.com, tweet us at ddirectorpod on Twitter, or follow us at discoveringdirectorspodcast on Facebook. And next week, you can come back for a much more accessible film, Copland, which definitely does not sound like one of the the world's most (laughs) doesn't sound like one of the world's most depressing theme parks and also a movie (laughs) and also a movie we will have to tip down (laughs) tiptoe around (laughs) poor Ethan got interrupted by multiple bits (laughs) yeah I just kept going goodbye you didn't say thank y'all for coming oh bye